I'm apologizing in advance. We had a little bit of a formatting issue with the slides this morning. Um, we had it seemed to seemingly perfect before we submitted them to church, and now they're a little off. But hopefully you can read everything. If you have any questions, you can see me afterwards. Um, but as was mentioned, we are starting a new series today. And before we do so, first I want to ask you a question. Hopefully it, you'll, you may remember this. I don't know. It will transport you back to middle school English class. Okay? Does anybody remember what the definition of a paradox is? <laughs> no. Somebody over here does not remember. So a paradox is a statement which seems that if one part is true, how can the other part of the statement be true? So it looks contradictory on the surface level, right? But through experience and giving it some deeper thought, you realize, no, wait, both of these can, can be true. Let me give you a few common paradoxes that most of us experience in life. Uh, how about the more you try to impress people, the least impressed they are, right? How about the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. The more we get, get connected with like technology or social media, the more isolated we feel. So there's just some, some paradoxes in everyday life. God's word itself as well contains many paradoxes, statements that appear contradictory on the surface when put next to one another, but with deeper study reveal some amazing truths. Um, to get the juices flowing, here's two biblical paradoxes that uh, we will not be addressing in this series. But how about in Matthew 5, it says, light your, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and praise your Father, right? Well, the very next chapter, it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others and be seen by them, right? You're like, what's up with that? Here's another one. In Isaiah, it says, Jesus will be called the Prince of Peace. But in Matthew, it says, Jesus himself said, don't assume that I came to bring you peace. So these are some paradoxes, things that with deeper study really bring out more of the truth of God's word. And they complement one another. So today, this will begin our four-week series, and we are calling it Beautiful Tensions. These are biblical truths that are held in tension with another. They're both equally true. So just to review, in the next three weeks, so next week we'll be looking at in the world, but not of it followed by troubled yet hopeful, uh, followed by our part and God's part. And today, although it's listed at the end, this is what we are looking at today, is that how we are forgiven, yet we are told to confess our sins. So as Christians, the Bible makes it clear that past, present, and future sins are completely and fully forgiven when we become a child of God. But the Bible also says you need to confess your sins to God and ask for forgiveness. So that can be a little confusing. So that's what we're going to be looking into today. So before getting to our key passage today, we're going to look at a few verses um, that the Apostle Paul wrote. So in Colossians 2, 13 to 14, Paul wrote, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And another pa passage that speaks about our complete forgiveness is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So you'll know this. Paul makes it clear that if you have trusted Jesus and his sacrifice on behalf for your sins, that all your sins have been forgiven. And notice the past tense. God, he forgave all our sins, just as in Christ, God forgave you. 
So your for God's forgiveness of you is complete. It's already been achieved. It's total. But let's look at our key passages today, today and see how this compares. So this comes from 1 John chapter 1, bleeding into chapter 2, and this is written by the Apostle John. And he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. So John focuses on a different aspect of, he focuses on confessing our sins. Why? So that God will forgive us of our sins. And it, going, that's going back to verse 9. If we confess, God will forgive us of our sins and purifies from all unrighteousness. So again, why are we confessing our sins if we've already been forgiven? And that's the beautiful tension for today. The interesting thing is Jesus also echoes the same sort of thought. When you look at the, um, the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And what does he say? Well, part of it is give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, right? So Jesus, like John, is, is more talking about our daily need to confess our sins to God. So then you might say, well, is there a contradiction? Like Paul is saying our forgiveness is complete. Jesus and John are saying, no, you need to keep asking for forgiveness and confess your sins. And this is where careful biblical study is important. So on further examination, we see that the contradiction really isn't between Paul and then Jesus and John over here, but rather, interestingly enough, it's between what John wrote and another thing that John wrote. So let's look in 1 John again. If you remember, in verse, 1 John 1, 9, it says, we confess our sins so that we can be forgiven and be purified. But just a few verses later, in 1 John 2, 12, John writes this. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins, what? Have been forgiven on account of his name. So John himself, in the same book, just a few verses apart from one another, speaks about our need to confess our sin to God, but also the fact that our sins have been forgiven. So let's see if we can pull that apart a bit and see what that means. So going back to the two verses that I just shared, we have Colossians 2.13 and Ephesians 4.32. And both of them essentially say the same thing. God forgave us, past tense, all of our sins. And the writer of Hebrews also emphasizes this when he mentions the completed nature of Jesus' saving work on the cross, that there was nothing that was not done. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, by one sacrifice he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Jesus' sacrifice was once and done for the full forgiveness of our sins. So I just want to introduce you to a theological term. Theologians call this positional forgiveness. And this forgiveness refers to salvation that the moment that Jesus became the only means through which we can be saved and we surrendered our lives to him, Jesus has taken all our sins away in that moment, our past, present, and future sins, as far as the east is from the west. That's how Psalm 103 puts it. So when we put our trust in Jesus, 
all our past, present, and future sins are forgiven on a judicial basis. That means we will not suffer eternal judgment for our sins. That's the moment we call justification. And so we stand justified, forgiven before God. So in other words, our forgiveness is secure, our salvation is secure the moment we fully surrender our lives to Jesus and confess our sins to him. And Jesus himself remarks on this security. He talks about in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. That's when we surrender our lives to Jesus and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So positionally, as a child in God's kingdom, we've been forgiven for every sin that we have committed or will ever commit. Remember, Jesus said it is finished on the cross, right? And he meant it. It was, it was finished. Our sins have been paid for. And again, this is the positional forgiveness that John wrote about in 1 John 2.12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So that's positional forgiveness. Let's look now back again at our main passage. The Bible teaches in many places that there are certain traits that people who are true followers of Jesus will have. So if you truly belong to Jesus, if you're truly born again, then you have to deal with the ongoing sin in your life. And what, what, what would be a mark of a Christian? How would they deal with the sin in their life? So let's reread our main passage today and see what answers we find. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. So in verse 8, it says, uh, John clearly indicates that we will continue to sin as Christians. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we what? We deceive ourselves, right? And the truth is not in us. And I love the fact that he used the word we. So he's not saying, if you claim to be without sin, you are deceived. He includes himself in this. So the very last remaining disciple of Jesus on earth at the end of his life is still himself included in that. He's still struggling with sin, right? And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that actually is, is really encouraging to me. If, if, you know, a person who walked and lived with Jesus and, and stayed true to him his whole life is still, in a sense, struggling with sin, then I should be encouraged by that. He's still an incredible leader. He's an amazing testimony of what a Christ follower looks like. And that encourages me to keep fighting the good fight of faith. John continues to write in chapter 3 of 1 John, he asks the question, but why do we continue to sin? If our sins have been forgiven, why do we continue to sin? And this is John's answer to that. In 1 John 3, 2, he, wrote, he writes, Dear friends, now that we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So even though we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, even though we've been fully forgiven, based on our position now as a child of God and his family, our bodies are not redeemed yet, and we're still contending with this sinful, fleshly nature of ours. So we're, we are definitely God's children, but we're also in the process of becoming more like Jesus. And in this process of being more like Jesus, 
we will definitely displease God at times in sin. And sadly, the sin in our lives, what does it do? It breaks our fellowship with our Heavenly Father, right? So John tells us, okay, our sin breaks our fellowship with God. What do we need to do? We need to confess our sins, and God will forgive us. This is what theologians call relational forgiveness. So we had the positional forgiveness, right? We spoke about we're forgiven completely as God's child, but now when we sin, our fellowship with God, our peace with him, is broken until we confess our sin. And when we confess our sin, I, I love it, the Holy Spirit reawakens us to what Christ has already done for us. It's not that Christ has to offer another sacrifice, but the Holy Spirit reawakens us to what Christ has already done. He revives our sense of security in him and assurance of our salvation. He, he restores our fellowship with God when our relationship is broken. Let me illustrate this um, by a familial uh, situation. So, yeah, I'm a parent, and I have six kids, right? Because they are my six kids, they will always and forever be my six kids. Nothing will ever change that. Positionally, they are my kids. Legally, they are my kids. The relationship we have is permanent, period. Yet, if one of them sins against me, or if I sin against them, our relationship gets strained, right? And it needs to be restored. And this, is, this really only happens when one party goes to the other and confesses their sin, and the other party grants forgiveness. So that's the same is true in our relationship with God. As someone who's trusted in Jesus' saving work on the cross, I'm his child, period. Nothing can take this away from me. Even my sin can't change that fact. My position in God's kingdom is secure, but I can strain my relationship with God when I sin, and therefore, need to confess my sin to God to keep our relationship strong and healthy. And this is how we make sense of the beautiful t tension of being completely and totally forgiven in Christ as his child, but yet needing the ongoing forgiveness from God. In daily asking God to forgive us, we do not add anything to Christ's perfect once-for-all work. Instead, it's an act of reminding ourselves and reassuring ourselves of the forgiveness that God has already granted us. I tried to kind of summarize these two thoughts of positional forgiveness and relational forgiveness in a chart, and I'm hoping this might help you understand it a little better, too. So positional forgiveness would correspond with justification, and that speaks of when we initially surrender our lives to Jesus based on what he did on the cross for us. What does that look like? It, re it looks like all the removal of the penalty of our sin, right? We are free from the condemnation of a righteous judge. We can stand justified before him. And we are given the guarantee of an unshakable standing of God's child. Remember Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hands. In comparison, relational forgiveness, which is addressed in our key passage today, speaks about sanctification, which we will we'll touch on in a little bit. But that's the process by grow more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. So in relational forgiveness, we've, we've got the gift of the Holy Spirit living in us, and we have the power to overcome the sin that we contend with. It also includes the confession of our sins, right? Jesus said, confess our sins. And it also gives us restored peace in our unshakable relationship with our Heavenly Father. So that's the theological framework that we're working with today. I'd like to read an, uh, an illustration that I came across, and it's a little lengthy, but I thought it just hits so well um, what I'm trying to convey here. 
um, and it's called The Case of the Stolen Watch. So suppose that just before I began to speak, I take off my watch, I don't wear a watch, but if I took off my watch, I lay it on the podium. I forget it's there, I walk off and leave, leave it. Someone from the crowd notices that I left my watch here. He makes his way down to the stage, and thinking that he is unobserved, he simply walks by the podium and slips the watch into his pocket. However, someone sees him take my watch, and the next day informs me as to the identity of the thief. It is someone I know. Naturally, I am surprised and disappointed, but I choose to forgive him. Once I deal with any negative feelings I may have, there's no barrier in my relationship with this man as far as I'm concerned. My relationship with him has not changed, and even though he stole my only watch, I have already forgiven him for his actions. I have canceled the debt, I have assumed the loss. When I see him sitting in the crowd the following Sunday, I do not say, hey, you stole my watch. I have forgiven him, so I must trust the Lord to convict him of his sin. But suppose the offender discovers that I'm aware of his actions. By coincidence, we meet in the hallway. There are just the two of us, and I say to him, hey, how are you? I'm glad to see you. You see, I'm free because I've forgiven him. I'm not carrying the excess emotional weight of an unforgiving spirit, bitterness, or resentment for his action. But what do you suppose is going on inside of him? He feels guilty, embarrassed, ashamed, fearful, regretful, found out. I give him a warm, friendly handshake. I smile. I even invite him to lunch. But he nervously excuses himself. His eyes are unable to meet mine. He hurries off. He is miserable. His conscience is gnawing at him. His smile and sense of humor are gone. The only way he's going to be comfortable around me and have fellowship with me again is to clear his conscience by confessing to me that he took my watch and by asking for my forgiveness. My reply would then be, you were already forgiven. I forgave you even before I knew who took it. He did not have to come to me to get forgiveness. He was already forgiven. But his confession was necessary for him to clear his conscience and to be restored to his previous fellowship with me. And this is what happens when we come to God confessing our sin. The confession doesn't persuade God to forgive us. He already did that at the cross. Our confession restores us to our previous level of fellowship and intimacy with him from our perspective. God didn't change. He still was loving toward us and forgiving toward us. He didn't turn away from us because of our sins. His love was not affected. He was not disappointed. He already knows about the sins we are yet to commit, and his response is the same, forgiven. I thought that was just really powerful and illustrated well, that we are already forgiven by God, even when we come to him and confess a new sin in our life. So we see that confession is actually a key part of our sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. One of my favorite verses on the topic of sanctification is in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. It says, therefore, my oh, when you look at this, look for the words in and out. They're kind of the key that explains sanctification here. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So this kind of echoes John's message that we spoke about. First, God works in us, right? He saves us and he redeems us. John said our sins have been forgiven. 
But then the out part, right? We're to work out our salvation. So basically, take what God did on the inside and bring it to the outer workings of our life. Sanctification looks like lies of increasing consistency. Not perfection, but increasing consistency with the evidence of our inner transformation becoming more and more apparent on the outside. And confession is so important in this process because we're not going to be perfect this side of eternity. This is something that we need to do on a regular basis. So an example of my life, what does sanctification look like in my life? Um, the, one of the main areas God is refining me is in my angry responses to things, how I can be unjustifiably angry or overly angry, however you want to put it. I can, I can yell, and then what happens? Because God's Spirit's living in me, he convicts me, I feel bad, I confess to God, like, God, I don't know why I spoke to that person that way, please forgive me. Then I seek out the offended party, I apologize and ask for their forgiveness. So some might feel, oh, that's, that's really discouraging. No, on the other hand, it shows that God's spirit is alive and working in me. What if I didn't feel convicted? What if I just kept doing that? And, and I never went back and apologized and never corrected things. So this is actually an exciting process where God's spirit is living in me. It doesn't show me as perfect because none of us will be but rather as a forgiven child of God who's becoming more and more like Jesus as I confess my sin to him and at times to others. So this is the sanctification process in my life and in many other areas of my life, and I'm guessing in yours as well. So for our application today, I want you to go away with two main thoughts on this. The first is to take sin seriously and confess quickly. So when, I'll take the first part uh, there, take sin seriously. In order to take sin seriously, we first need to be aware of God's incredible holiness. How are we going to think that sin is horrible and offensive to God unless we understand just how amazingly holy God is? God's holiness can be described as absolute moral purity, being 100% pure and undefiled. He's the very source and standard of goodness. And remember in our, our series in Isaiah recently, uh, Brian was preaching on Isaiah 6 where the angels are flying around in God's throne room saying, holy, holy, holy. This is the only description of God in the entire Bible that is repeated three times. So it's a literary device to bring great emphasis to something. So God's just not holy. He's not just a little bit holy. He's really, really, really holy. And us, in contrast, in our sin is the exact opposite. Yet we're told in scripture at least nine times, be holy as God is holy, right? Wow, how can we do that, God? How can we possibly be holy like you? Well, a way you can do that is my second point is develop a hatred of sin. I think sometimes we like our sin or we minimize it. We think it's not so bad, right? But any sin, whether we think it's small or big, is offensive to God. We need to realize that sin stands against everything of who God is and, and against everything we claim to believe in and worship, right? Our sin is offensive to God. And Jen Wilkins says, I love how she puts this, uh, if you could go back to slide, she said, we will never turn from a sin that we don't hate. We need to hate our sin enough to allow God's Holy Spirit to give us the power to turn from it. Let me give you a few reasons why we should hate sin. One, sin breaks our relational peace with God, as we've discussed today. 
We can, our fellowship can be broken with him. Sin negatively impacts our personal relationships. I think that's pretty obvious. Sin mars our testimony as believers, right? In our beginning of our passage today, John said, walk as children of the what? Of the light, not as children of darkness. So we don't want our testimony as believers to be marred by sin. There are just three quick and obvious reasons why we should hate sin. When we are aware of how much our sin is contrary to God's holiness, we should be spirit-led to confess, repent, and then to receive God's discipline. That's a whole other subject. But remember, it says in the Bible, God disciplines those he loves. Don't be afraid to confess your sin. When he disciplines us, it's out of love because we are his child and he wants us to grow more and more in the image of his son. So again, it's take sin, serious, sin seriously and confess quickly. So the second part of our first application point goes back to 1 John 1, 8. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I think, you know, we all have a general sense of what does it mean to confess our sins. But I think today it'd be helpful to get a little more specific. So first of all, it's an agreement with God that we have sinned. So the word confess actually means to agree with. So when we confess, we're agreeing with God we have sinned, that our thoughts, motives, speech, or actions are contrary to his holiness. We agree that our sin is an act against him, that it's destructive for the purposes of our lives, and that it will ultimately carry consequences that will prove painful. So first of all, confession is agreeing with God with our sin. Second, confession implies that we assume responsibility for our sin. We make no excuses. We don't blame our sin on other people. We take responsibility that it was me and my poor choices that led me astray. Third, confession is a way to wage war on our sin. And that you need to be specific when you are confessing your sin. We want to identify our sin in our confession. So when we name our sin, why we can be more alert and on the lookout in the future. Right? Because what does it say? The, the Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be on alert. So when we confess our sins and we're specific about our sins, it helps us to be more on alert with this. And this is something we do with our children. They probably ad nauseum. Sometimes it feels, <laughs> feels a little overdone sometimes. But when one of them sins against another or against us, however it is, we, the whole I'm sorry just doesn't cut it in our family. Right, guys? <laughs> So it always starts with, please forgive me for, you know, being selfish, for thinking of myself, for yelling at you, whatever it is, specific, please forgive me for this. Um, And then that's how the relationship is restored. But let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to see our own sin, right? I mean, that's why in the Bible, many times you see, Lord, show me my sin, like, if I've done anything again, offensive against you, Lord, show me. Because we can be so blind, right? Jesus says we, we can have a plank in our eye and not even know it and see a speck in somebody else's eye. So in order to confess our sins specifically, we need to ask God to show us what our sins are. They're not always obvious. And that requires a humble heart to see where we fall short of God's holiness. Four, regarding confession, not only should it be specific, it also should be, should be quick. I wrote confess quickly. Why is that? Well, first, we said um, our sin breaks our fellowship with God, right? So why would we want to continue with a, 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 you know, a broken fellowship with God? Wouldn't we want to restore that as soon as we could? 
Second, another reason of confession, uh, confessing our sin, is that you experience a certain uh, benefits from it. Like you experience release from guilt, from tension, from pressure, from emotional stress, which our sin has caused. So when we fail to confess our sins, we're basically continuing the guilt and tension, pressure, emotional stress, right? And we see this is so beautifully in the psalm that David wrote. So in Psalm 32, I want you to listen to the first, uh, first we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Listen to David's emotions as he wrestled with unconfessed sin in his life. He said, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. That's crazy. I mean, God was disciplining him with like physical pain for his unconfessed sin, right? So not just emotional pain, he had physical pain even from holding on and not confessing his sin. But listen to the release that he experienced when he confessed. So going back to verses 1 and 2, it says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord is clear to guilt, whose lives are, lives are lived in complete honesty. Then jump down to verse 5. Finally, I confess all my sins to you and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. So I just thought it was amazing. Like, it, it's not just emotionally, even physically, we can be impacted by unconfessed sin. I'll ask you, have you ever experienced this? You've been so, so torn up by your sin, and you, you kind of keep reliving it in your mind, and you even feel the physical impacts of it. Maybe you have a knot in your stomach, you, have, you're, you can't sleep, you have an overwhelming fear of consequences, like if you confess. That, that is not a place we should stay in as followers of Jesus. God wants us to confess our, our sin to him, to restore our relationship with him, and also to experience the freedom that comes when we confess our sins, which I just spoke about, which we just saw in the psalm that David wrote. So it's an incredible relief when we are offered true forgiveness. God will always offer us forgiveness. We never need to fear going to him and think, oh, I don't know if you're going to forgive me for this one. He will always forgive us. And when he does, our relationship's restored, our burden is lifted, we feel lighter, ready to conquer the world, right? But God wants us to take this new sound this newfound sense of freedom and not abuse it, but to use that sense of freedom to pursue him in holiness. And I believe this is what the writer of Hebrews was getting at, Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, throw off the sin that entangles us, and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So I want to take a minute and camp on the gospel message in our passage today, which means the good news. What is the good news of Jesus in our passage today? So we mostly looked at it from the perspective of a Christian who needs to daily confess their sins, but let's not miss the gospel message in here. So if you go back to 1 John 2, 1 and 2, let me reread that. It says, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So it says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, what does that mean, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice? Well, simply put, atonement means reconciliation. That's when two parties who are at, at odds with, with one another come and have restored friendship or harmony. 
The Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross, him paying the penalty for our sins, gave us the opportunity to be reconciled with God. We can be at peace with him when we confess our sins, believe that Jesus paid the full penalty for them that we deserved, God forgives us completely and no longer counts our sins against us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So we can have that initial surrender of our lives and receive positional forgiveness where all our sins are forgiven. And the fact that we needed reconciliation meant that our relationship with God was broken. We all entered life and however long the initial period was, where we were not reconciled to God. We were not at peace with God. Romans 5.10 says that we were actually enemies of God. For if, when we were at God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So it's amazing, glorious truth of Christian faith is that when we confess our sins and we become truly born again, surrendering our lives to Jesus, we move from being God's enemy to being God's friend. We're completely reconciled. We're no longer in a state of condemnation, but we're totally and completely forgiven. And I encourage you to consider making that decision today. Jesus is our advocate. He wants to mediate between us and the Father. He speaks to the Father on our behalf and will cover all our sins if we would just ask him. The second application point is consider the process of sanctification a gift. I love how good is God that not only does he completely forgive us and and ensure us of eternal salvation, but now he doesn't leave us alone in our struggle against sin. He gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can have increasing victories over sin. And as we talked about earlier, we have to work out the salvation over the course of many years. And going back to Jen Wilkins, she said this about sanctification and what a gift it is. She said, we become slower to step into the familiar traps and quicker to repent. And this becomes a mantra of hope. Our hatred of sin is learned across a lifetime. So it's a mantra of hope. So sometimes sanctification feels a bit like a drag, but it's not. It's actually a beautiful gift that God has given us. If there are sins that keep entangling us, things that are recurring temptations, the gift of sanctification says we can be free of that sin or we can be ensnared less frequently as we continue to grow more and more into the image of Jesus and rely on his spirit. But I have to ask you, do you ever feel like you're you kind of stalled out, like you're not really becoming more like Jesus? You don't really see that process happening in your life? Well, let me share an illustration that might help you. Um, and this, might, this is going to date me, I think. But when I was growing up in elementary school, there was a word, and um, it was called floods. Has anyone had that experience from elementary school about my time frame? So there's this word called floods, okay? So basically, they were pants that were too short, right? And if a child went to school with pants that they had outgrown, maybe they weren't aware they outgrew it, right? And everyone would say, you're wearing floods. And they'd sing a little ditty like, you know, um, your pants are short. The fl- uh, they would say, the flood is gone, the land is dry. Why do you wear your pants so high? So you would go to school and people would tease you. And like the last thing you want to do is go to school with uh, wearing floods, right? You know, and I, I have this all the time um, as my sons grow in particular. They put on a pair of pants and all of a sudden like, you can't wear those. They're too short. So seemingly overnight, my son grew a few inches. He can no longer wear these pants. Of course, logic says this isn't true. He did not grow three inches while he was sleeping last night, right? 
it was really incrementally over time, but the process was so slow, you don't even recognize it, right? Until one morning, you're like, oh my gosh, you can't wear those. And I think the obvious spiritual parallels uh, you can see. So sometimes we become discouraged in our walk with God. We feel like we keep falling into the same sins. We feel like we're not growing at all. Now, that could be the case. Maybe you're not really investing in your relationship with God. Maybe you're not growing. But if you are investing time with God, spending time with him, listening to his word and praying, you can be assured that he is changing you more and more into the image of Jesus, even if you're not aware of it at that particular time. So sanctification will be part of a true believer's life, although the break from sin may not be sudden. It may just happen gradually and be a growing process. And this is... um, Another thing by Jen Wilkin, who had, who had spoken on this, I just want to read this as an encouragement to you. I had turned again to an old familiar sin, but I couldn't remember the last time it had happened. Across many years, a sin that had been frequent had grown seldom. Thanks be to God. There is renewed grief in our confession of a repeated sin, but there is real comfort in seeing the distance stretch between those confessions. That widening distance... So, you know, I used to sin this frequently, now it's this, and it's getting that widening distance tells me that the grace of God is indeed teaching me to say no to ungodliness and training me to lead a self-controlled godly life. I am being transformed, and the God who is accomplishing this transformation is so patient with me. So don't be discouraged by this process. See sanctification as a beautiful gift. He loves us so much and wants to mold us into his image. And when you feel discouraged about this process, I want you to remember one truth from our passage today, and that goes back to 1 John 2, 1 to 2. My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have a what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is a atoning sacrifice for sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is our advocate. What's that mean? That means he, he goes between Like, he's an intercessor. An intercessor is someone who goes between two parties. So what does he do? Let's look in Romans 8.34. The same idea of Jesus being our advocate or intercessor. It says, "Who who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. To better understand Jesus being our advocate or our intercessor, it's actually helpful to look at the opposite of this. And that is Satan, who is our accuser. It says in Revelation 12, 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. So Satan's accusing us to God the Father. And Jesus is there interceding for us and being our advocate. Satan's trying to make us feel so condemned by our sin that we don't even bother confessing them. Why confess them? I'm hopeless. I'll never change, right? Satan's our accuser. That's what he wants us to think. While Satan accuses, Jesus defends us. Sad to say, but in our verse from Revelation, it says Satan never stops accusing us. We need to accept that. It says day and night he accuses us. But... What does Hebrews 7 say? Jesus is forever interceding for us. So here's a little chart that um, I put together. I thought it would be really helpful. So Satan says to us, he's accusing us of our sin. Condemned, condemned. Jesus said, no, there's no condemnation in me. Satan says, broken. 
Jesus said, no, you're fully restored and precious. Satan says, unworthy. Jesus says, no, you're righteous because of me. And here's the one for today. Satan says, guilty, unforgiven. And Jesus said, no, you're already fully forgiven. So Jesus' ministry of intercession, he doesn't just counter what Satan says. He overpowers them, and Satan will be completely hurled down. Jesus is the all-powerful one. Satan can't hold a candle to him when we are in God's kingdom. Remember, no one can snatch us out of his hands. Satan's accusations are always proved wrong by Jesus. Intercession means that Jesus Christ represents us before the throne of God, and we do not have to represent ourselves. So we can give what I call the one-two punch to sin. I've been doing some kickboxing lately. We can do the the one-two punch to sin, right? So we have Jesus in heaven advocating for us before the throne, right? And at the same time, his spirit lives in us and empowers us to overcome sin. Is that not an amazing gift? Sanctification. So in conclusion, um, I just want to remind us, we talked about atonement, meaning reconciliation. The English word atonement actually meant at one man or at one with. So when we desire, um, when we have a fracture in our relationship with God, what do we want? We want it to be made whole. We want to be at one with God again. And John is assuring us that if we confess our sins, we will be assured of our positional forgiveness, which is our total and complete forgiveness before God as his child, and that we will also be restored to a right relationship with God as we journey in this life. So when we confess, we receive an assurance of who we are in Christ and a restoration of our fellowship with God. So let me end with this illustration, and I'm going to put Drew and Sarah on the spot and ask you a quick question. So I'm curious, since you've gotten married, you're newlyweds, right? Everything's probably easier for you than some of us have been married a long time. Have you had to ask each other for forgiveness since you got married? Yes? Okay. So the day after you got married, did, did one of you say to the other, eh, now that we're married, I don't have to ask forgiveness anymore. You're stuck with me. No? <laughs> so it, we would think that ridiculous, right? Does anyone think that'd be a healthy approach to marriage? Oh, we're married. You're stuck with me. Sorry, I'm not going to apologize anymore. What's the point? We're already married, right? And so when you look at this covenant of marriage, you see how it can relate to our positional forgiveness. We are already in God's family. Nothing will change that, right? We don't need to fear that if we sin, it's going to break everything we have with God. But our relationship will suffer, right, if we do not regularly confess our sins to one another. So in the marriage, you may legally still be married and positionally be husband or wife of each other, but your relationship could be really strained if you never confess and ask forgiveness, right? So let's approach our relationship with God in the same way. Let's be thankful for the security he gives us, our eternal life. Let's try and cherish him and honor him and all that we say and do, and let's confess quickly when we fail, which will likely be often. And this is living the beautiful tension of forgiven yet confessing sin. Um, you are now going to have an opportunity, uh, led by Steve, to participate in communion, which goes along nicely with the message.